Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. In 1946, Ed Rose was left at a Catholic orphanage in pre-World War II Brooklyn. There he spent the next 19 years going from one institution to another until he was, in his words, unceremoniously dumped out into the world. In his book, Raised by the Church, Rose talks about the history of orphanages and speaks for some of the thousands of baby boomers taken in by the Catholic institutions in New York City. Good morning, Ed Rose. Good morning, and thank you for having me. Now, in your book, Raised by the Church, you note that long before there was even a New York, society worked to provide for orphanages and abandoned children. So what was the predecessor of the orphanage? Well, we call them the the poorhouse. There were the poorhouses, and then there were the orphan trains. The orphan trains actually shipped people from New York City to the Midwest. It's a very, very sad story. In fact, when we did the book, my co-author Judith Estrin and myself did the book. She focused on the history, and I focused on my story. I found learning about the history more intriguing than my own personal story. Even though my own personal story was painful and wrenching, the learning about the history, that I'm really part of that history, was really over- for me, was 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 incredible. So, Ed, what were Catholic orphanages like in the 1950s and 60s? They were amazing. For the first 13 years of my life, I actually thought that I was discharged from the hospital and brought to my first orphanage, an Angel Guardian Home in Brooklyn. I only found out five years ago when I was doing the research for this book. And to be honest with you, when I did the research, I almost broke down and cried because I didn't. I learned something I didn't know all my life. Which was? Was that I found out when I was born that my mother and father had me at a wedlock and they really wanted an abortion. And even though it was illegal and they couldn't afford an abortion, they didn't want me. And reading that case history from the archives was very, very disturbing when I heard this from the social worker. I wanted to break down and cry, to be honest with you, five years ago. And I found out that for the first six months of my life, because they couldn't afford the abortion, my mother brought me to a maternal aunt in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, in a rooming house. I lived in a furnished room and just dropped me off and said, I don't want him. So how did you get from your aunt's house to the orphanage? In the six months, the maternal aunt was really concerned about being thrown out because the landlord did not allow children. And she thought she was going to be destitute if she didn't get rid of me. And she didn't have the resources and the finances to take care of me. So she begged my mother to come back. And you'll read more details in the book, but she begged my mother to come back and pick me up. So my mother picked me up and dropped me off at Angel Guardian Home. That was my first place of my journey through the Catholic orphanage system. What do you remember about that? What I know about that was that my first orphanage, I was six months to two years of age. And where was this? Angel Guardian Home in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. And there was about 140 babies, and there was a backlog. There was actually, there was actually gridlock, in those days called gridlock in 1946. So instead of staying there for a year, I had to actually stay there for the first two years of my life because there was no room in the inn in the previous place where we went from place to place based on your age and grade. The nuns tell me when I first got to the orphanage, I was sick. I was in the crib at six months old, and I couldn't even climb, couldn't even grasp the, the handles and the bars. And they said when eight months of age, when I was able to pick myself up, they rejoiced and said they, their prayers were answered. That's how sick I was. And, and they I, helped nurse you back to nurse health. Nurse you back to health. And then I got transferred to the Covenant of Mercy in Willoughby in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. How old were you then? I was two years old to six years of age. And that, that now I start remembering how it was. And I always remember for the first time I met what I call in the book an Aunt Catherine, mm-hmm. who I call my guardian angel. Yeah. And, I, and I say my guardian angel because I had no one 
and she took an interest in me because of my initiative. Oh, well, now tell that story. That was a cute story oh, how you met Aunt Catherine. It's a great, <laughs> Robin, it's a great story. What happened was that she's visiting Sister Johanna, who worked in the Covenant of Mercy. She was a nun there. A nun there who supervised the playground. And while she's moving the playground, in those days, the nuns were not allowed to leave the convent. So their relatives had to come and visit them. So Aunt Catherine would go visit her every Sunday. So one Sunday, I'm in the playground. I see this woman talking to And you were a little kid. Four years old, five years old. I see this lady talking to this nun, Sister Johanna. And I went up to her and pulled her skirt and says, Who are you? Who are you? I'm, the, I'm Catherine McCarthy. Well, who are you? I'm Sister Johanna's sister. Oh, well, my name is Ed Rose. Nice to meet you. And I ran away. She fell in love with me. She fell in love with me. She said, who's that kid? <laughs> with all this moxie. <laughs> with all this moxie. With all this moxie. <laughs> and from that day on, every Thanksgiving, every Christmas, and every Easter, for the next 19 years, she was my only contact with the outside world. And for those 19 years, I felt blessed and fortunate to have someone because most of the kids had no one. And back to the Covenant of Mercy and the other institutions, I lived in dormitories that... Housed from, a lot of boys, boys, right? A lot of boys ready from 24 boys to 78 boys or 72 boys in one room. And how many nuns were there taking care of these 70-some-odd boys? One two nuns wow. taking care of up to 72 kids in one dormitory, housing us and cleaning us and making sure we got up in the morning, got changed for school, went to bed, did our clothing, went to meals, went to mass, went to church, went to rest, washed up, did an outstanding job. I realize now under the circumstances, did a remarkable job that it had to be their calling. They didn't do it for the money. It was unbelievable. And remember in those days, Robin, there was little or no government subsidies. No financial, it was based on charity. And then I went to St. Mary's in, in Syosset, and there I was about five, six years old. When we used to put on plays, they had a lot of parties for us. The, the fraternity organizations, the Knights of Columbus, the police, the, the PBA, you name it, the fire department, the Kiwanis Club, the Elks Club. So they did reach out to all connect with you up, in they, the neighborhood. They really did. They reached out to the community. And the community came and had a, an abundance of parties for us, an abundance of activities for us to try to make our, our life a little more happier, a little more, a little more comfortable. And one time we had a play on it. We put on a, a play in St. John and then St. Mary's, Syosset. And you'll read this. The, the, the readers will love this story in the book. We're putting on this play. And what we're putting this play on I'm starting, I'm jittery. I can't stand still. And a nun is standing next to me in the middle of the play, and she's going, shh, shh, stand still, Rose. Stand still, Eddie Rose. I couldn't stand still in the middle of the play. Were you nervous? Were you scared? You're just jittery. You ready, Robin? In front of 150 people, I put my hand up and says, I have to go to the bathroom. (laughs) The place was hysterical. The nun was fit to be tied. She grabs me by the hand, drags me down to the stage, and she's telling me all the way to the bathroom, you embarrassed St. Mary's. You embarrassed St. Mary's. Rose, do you know what you did? I get back from the bathroom. As I'm going back on the stage, I get a standing ovation. The people are clapping hysterically. She says, I guess you didn't embarrass St. Mary's because they love you. 
It's a great story. <laughs> that is a great story. And then they went, and then they went from St. Mary's Angel's home to St. John's home in Rockaway. And it was the first time I went. And how old were you now? I was ready. I was 11 years old. And now for the first time, I'm having the Mariners brothers, no longer nuns. And there was no discharge planning. In those days, there was no discharge planning. You, you transfer from orphanage to orphanage based on your age and grade. And there was no planning. There's no, you were just told the week before, pack your bags, you're going. So any relationship you had, they were all severed. You, you severed any relationship you had with any adults completely. The same and it must have been hard going from being taught and trained by nuns, females, to now brothers. It was very difficult because now, the, of, course, of course, before you left, the nuns would tell you to scare you and say, those brothers are going to put you, they're going to keep you in line. They are, if you think we're disciplined, they are really disciplined. And you know, people talk about the nuns. They were never abusive. You hear these horror stories about what nuns do. To the contrary, to the contrary. Your experience was they were always kind. 100% firm, caring, passion, compassionate. Nothing with these stories you hear about nuns beating kids and all this. Never witnessed that, never experienced that once in my life with, with, with the Sisters of Mercy. Never once. They did a remarkable job. And it's the same with the brothers in St. John's home. It was the Mariners brothers. The same brothers that operate the University of Dayton. Operate Shepherd High School in, in Long Island. This is the only institution they had, but they were really a teaching order. And they took care of us, and they were fantastic. I'm Robin Shannon on 90.7 WFUV, speaking with author Ed Rose about his book, Raised by the Church, Growing Up in New York City's Catholic Orphanages. For a short time when you were six, uh, you, you didn't live in an institution. So what happened at that small amount of time that you were oh, with a, someone? Yeah, here's what happened. When I was at St. Mary's Angels Home, they had a volunteer program where families would take children in for the weekend or for a couple of weeks in the summertime to, to get experience of what it was to live, to live with a family. And there was also a goal about hoping that families would take kids either in force a boarding home or adopt. But in my situation, my parents never gave up their parental rights. So you couldn't be adopted? I couldn't be adopted. In addition to that, before I go into the story about that family experience, at about four or five years old, I learned I was given psychological exam. And I didn't do well on that exam, on that, on that testing. And therefore, the psychologist that did that testing said he would not be appropriate for living in the community. And because of that kind of testing, I was languished for 19 years in institutions. But that's, that's another story. So you were stigmatized almost. I was stigmatized by an yeah. exam. And look where I am today. And so, they never even tested you again. They just took that one exam, one exam when you were when you were a little kid, and that followed you. And that's what psychologists. That's why this book is this book is really important for for many many people. We can go with that later on. And that's why people in education, people in social work, people in psychology, people in coaching, people in all whatever, the things you've done, all the things you've done. You hit a very good Robin. They really should. It's it's, it's a must. It's a, it's a one on one book, and not to stereotype or generalize anybody, case by case. But anyway, let's go to that family you were talking about. They sent me to a family in the Grimmers in Hicksville, New York. And you'll read about them in, in the book. And I was there for a week. And a week you and hated two. it. I hated it, Robin. I Why? Felt I was, by that time, I was so institutionalized, I felt more safe and secure in the orphanage than in the community. Now, the good thing is that it was the first time I went to a supermarket in my life. And explain that, because someone who, uh, you know, we take for granted that we can go to a supermarket anytime, but someone who has never been to a supermarket, because you always had 
uh, cafeteria everything, eating, everything, right? Everything was brought into the dining room. Everything was brought into the campus. So I never, we never left the campus to go shopping. I never went to a supermarket. So these are basic skills you just never learned. Never learned. Never went to a grocery store. Never went to a barber shop. Never went to a department store. Because you said everybody store. would come in. The barber would come in and cut your hair, and everybody, everybody did the same in. haircut. The, the, the clothing company would come in with the shoes. It was mass production. Would come in with, with two sets of shoes, and you 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 picked which shoe you wanted, which jacket you wanted, which pants you wanted, and that was it. So I go and for the first time. I am I'm besides myself because I'm in the supermarket and I'm I'm holding her side. She goes, "What's the matter with you? What's the matter with you?" I says, "I'm sorry." I was petrified because I never saw so much food in my life. Right. So many choice, so many variety. I couldn't believe that you can, the fruit section, the, the meat section, the grocery section. I, I, I didn't know what all this stuff was. It was the first time. I remember now, I'm now 10 years old. The six, she's 16 years of age. I'm going, what is this? It was, it was foreign to me. Right. It was foreign to me. And so when I came back for the visit, the nuns were hoping that it would work, but they could tell something was up. They could see. When I got back... I ran to my dormitory. I was I was so thrilled to be back in the institution, which means by that time I was institutionalized. And so you ended up, how long did it take you from the time you lived with this family until you got home? It wasn't very long. Okay, ready for, it was a week. The next time I was in a supermarket, when I was 19 years of age. Wow. So that means that, that one week experience in the supermarket was the last. That was it. How was that experience when you were 19? Were you more comfortable? Were you still a little lost? It was difficult because what happened was the social worker was a great social worker. It was a Jack Dempsey, a, a great person. He picked me up in front of St. Vincent's home with a big station rig. I guess he thought I'd have, I'd have a lot of personal belongings. I had no stereo. I had no TV. I had nothing. All I had was a little you know, the clothes on my back. So he, on the way, he's bringing me out from St. Vincent's home downtown Brooklyn to, to my first what we call a rooming house in Flappish. And I'm very, I was very fortunate. He was, I was petrified. I was, I was afraid. I was scared. Yeah, this is the first time you're on your own. On my own. First time in my life. And no, there was no teaching because I didn't have time to teach. People say, when you have 24 people in the dormitory, one counselor, how can you teach? You're just worried about order. Order. C- control, discipline, and order. So I went to the first rooming house, and he dropped me off, and he introduced me to the landlady, and it was a beautiful Victorian home. It was a beautiful neighborhood. And I looked up, I went, Wow. And I, my room was on the third floor. I was in a rooming house where the landlady had the first two floors of the of the place for herself, and she rented the rooms upstairs to the youngest person who was 60 years of age, beside me being 19. So I was in a rooming house with six or eight other people that were all 60 years or older. But it was a roof over my head. And so what was your first experience? The first experience? Food shopping. I, well, what I did was the first... I didn't go shopping because I didn't know how to go shopping. So what happened was... Uh, I went to the room. There was no TV. There was no telephone. There was no radio. Nothing. So, I had nothing for a week, two weeks until I would get my first paycheck. Because one thing St. Vincent's Home did do is they, besides giving me a furnished room, they did hook me up with a a, a, a full time job as a stockroom clerk in a home title insurance company. So I felt fortunate that at least I had a job and a roof over my head. Everything else I figured I'd learn on my own. So to, after you drop me off. I spent all weekend just walking the neighborhood, just walking, 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 walking. I didn't go to any stores. I was afraid to go to any stores because I'd never been to any stores. Because I was, I felt alone. I felt all by myself out there. There might have been people out there that were ready to help me, but as far as I was concerned, I said I'm going to do this on my own. That I'm not, falling, I'm not going to fall on my feet. I'm going to make it because of what it takes. But I'm not going to be dependent on anybody. So with perseverance and discipline, 
it was one day at a time. I started just listening. In fact, it's funny you say that, Rob, because I'd ask a lot of questions. And people, to people, I sound like a foreigner. Because you would ask what they would consider basic questions, basic questions, questions simple, simple questions. That I was never taught. Give me an example. For example, I said to them, um, where do I buy the newspaper? Well, I, the, right around to go to the newsstand. Basically, those things like, where, where do I get my food? Where, 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 if I need some milk or food, well, you go to the supermarket. I said, but I don't like it. It's too big. Well, then go to the deli around the corner. They're called delis. All these little things I didn't, I wasn't aware of. It, it sounds it sounds strange to people in in 2012 that I'm going back in my childhood that all this stuff was foreign to me. So slowly but surely, I it took a long, long time to, to adapt and go into a supermarket and buy little things for myself. So therefore, the first few years of my life, I didn't I went to mostly I eat in restaurants. And then so what happened was that at the 19 years of age, I uh, started hanging around around the, the corner from St. Vincent's home was there a bar, a local bar where. Kids that left St. Vincent's, that's where they socialized. Because we had no one else, so we, I, be, I began going to the, to the bar on weekends. Well, we, ha- we haven't talked about St. Vincent's yet, okay. so we're going to have to back up a little bit. Okay. So tell me what it was like being a Vinnie boy and what that means. Well, I have to tell you, before I got to St. Vincent's home, in St. John's home, I was petrified to go to St. Vincent's home. Why? Because true, adolescents that lived prior to me came back with these horrendous stories that St. Vincent's was lo- located downtown Brooklyn next to drug-infested Smith and Atlantic, Smith Street and Atlantic Avenue. And in those days, it was. In fact, we weren't allowed to cross the street from St. Vincent's. It was off-limits as far as getting past the lead the institution. We were not allowed to go to, to Smith Street, Atlantic Avenue, or Dean Street, Bergen Street, any of those streets. We weren't, and what year was this, Ed? 1965. In fact, the way I got to St. Vincent's was that in St. John's home... I was petrified to go to St. Vincent's, so my last year at St. John's home, I decided to fail all my subjects. Uh-oh. Yeah. And I was in an honor, I was in an honor class. I, was, I had Brother Matthew Betts, who had all of the, the bright students in St. John's home. Although I realize now the consequence of that decision was that when I went to St. Vincent's home a year later, by that time I was ready. By that time I was ready to go to St. Vincent's. What got you ready? I was 15 years old now. I was no longer that little kid anymore. I was the oldest kid at St. John's home, and I felt that a place. I said, you got to move on. So by that time, I was, I, was I was still afraid. And so what happened was when I went to St. Vincent's, they, my first time going to a public school, I went to John Jay High School. And you liked that idea. Because it was free meals. It was the first <laughs> time in my life there was girls. In fact, it's funny you say that, Robin. When they gave me the catalog to pick what high school we'd like to go, because we had special... Uh, permits to go to any high school we wanted in New York. We weren't uh, confined to any district. And I says, I looked in the book for Brooklyn, I says, oh, this one has girls. And that was the sole reason why I picked John Jay High School. Describe what it's like living in St. Vincent's. St. Vincent's home, it was 140 boys in a six-story building in the middle of downtown Brooklyn. Everything was done by the public address system. Rise and shine at 6 o'clock. So it's yeah. almost like being in the military where you hear that the announcements like the military. for yeah, everything. Definitely like the military. Tell yeah. me about your best friends at that time when you were a Vinnie boy. A Vinnie boy, Harry Perez. <laughs> Harry Perez, who was still, well, like half brothers today. The way we became best friends is that in the institution, if you're not an athlete, if, you, if, you're, not, if you're not a fighter, you get picked on. So we were in this camp, saying, Camp Christopher's, which you read about in the book. The summer camp. The summer camp. On that bat, we're playing softball. And I have... Four eyes, I'm 
I'm not coordinated. I'm not athletically coordinated as far as outside of football. And we're playing softball, and I'm up at bat, and Harry Perez yells out, Ed Rose, you're four eyes. You can't hit. I threw the bat on the ground, chased him in the middle of the field. We had this biggest fight. The coaches can't believe it. The counselors can't believe it. The players can't believe it. We had this biggest fight. We became the best of friends from that day on, and we've been friends for 45 years. <laughs> <laughs> In your book, Raised by the Church, Ed, you describe the instances of abuse while you lived in two separate Catholic-run institutions. The first was at the hands of a counselor, Kevin, who yes. you labeled the monster, yeah. and then the second was Brother D. You, and you even considered uh, Brother D like a father figure. So, yeah. so what happened in each instance? Okay. In with, with Kevin the monster, what happened was in St. Mary's of the Angels Home. And you were at what age again? I was between uh, 6 and 11 years of age. What happened was the, the nuns took care of the dormitories, the schools, and the food service. And so the playground, they tr entrusted into this person called Kevin. And so as a form of discipline, he would, whenever he punished us, he would, he was hang, he was hang, hang, make us hang by the rafters. Because in the playground, in, in the, below the kitchen, there was a playroom that had these pipes that were, we call them rafters, you know, you hang by the pipes. And whenever you had discipline, he would make us hang up there. And if you fell down in pain, he would smack you mm -hmm. and put you back up there. And you excruciating pain that until you couldn't hold anymore. And every time you came back, he'd smack you again and put, put you back up there. So it was almost torturous. It was always, yes, no question about it. But what happened was that the nuns weren't aware of it because they were so busy doing their chores and responsibilities. So they, they very, very rarely came over to the schoolyard. Very, they just figured, he's got the show. We have enough to do. So in this case, since you all the boys were institutionalized, you never spoke up because you didn't think you were allowed to. We didn't, yeah, we, we just thought it was a way of life. We didn't realize that who to, who to report it to. In fact, I'm convinced now, of course, that if the nuns knew about it, he'd be out on his ear. There's no question in my mind. In fact, we learned in doing the book, my co-author, Judith Estrom, and myself, when we did the research, we went out and visited these places, we found out that this Kevin was actually removed from those responsibilities. So it caught up to him. And what happened with Brother D? Brother D, what happened was... What year is this to? This is from 1957 to 1961. How old were you? And I was about 13 years of age. What happened was that in St. John's Home in Rockaway, when we were off in the summertime, the brothers would come in for, other, for the other schools to help out in the summertime, in the dormitories, in the playground, and the, the bee was on the, and on, at the beach. And his brother D came, the visiting brother came visiting us and volunteered and helped us out. He entrusted in me, you know, as a 13-year-old, you're looking for role models and nurturing and all that kind of stuff. And, I, and he entrusted me like, as a, like a big brother, like a, a parent figure. And there, and he abused me. What he would do is, after he built my trust, he would come to me at night and crawl to my bed and start touch, playing with you. me and touching me. And I was petrified, I was shocked, I couldn't sleep, and I, I didn't know what to do. Until after the second or third time he did it, I, I just screamed. Because I thought he had a lot of gall to do it in front of 38. We had 38 right, because boys. you're in this large institution and all you have are boys. beds, right? It's beds next to beds next to beds. 38 boys in one room. And he had the gall to come in and crawl and Into come in and, and, do, and, and, and abuse me sexually. And I realize now the consequences of that, of, of that behavior. 
towards me. That's why I'm, today I, I know, for example, now you read in the book, I had difficulty in building relationships. I wanted to be married. I wanted to have a family. And I realized now clinically, being a clinical social worker, how traumatized I was from that experience. I didn't know it back then, of course. But, you know, going to graduate school, et cetera, I realize now that... And you said that in your book, you said, um, cause, because you had an experience with a girlfriend, and you said, in looking back on it, you realized she needed clinical help, as did you. Did you ever get that clinical help? Never did. No? Never how did. Are, how did you end up coping with, with the sexual abuse and the physical abuse? Um, I've learned to live with it. I've, I've learned to live with it. And, and, and I have difficulty with really... In fact, the, the book tells my first love... And my first, you know... I, oh, I, that was yeah, heartbreaking. It was, it was heartbreaking, and then I tried other relationships. I, I, well, I've tell had, me about your first love. Tell me about that experience. The, the first love is, it was my first job. I was 19, 20 years of age, and she worked. She was a secretary for the personnel director in my first insurance company. And when we started going out, I, 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 fell, in love. I fell in love with her. I thought, this, this is my life. This is my dream. This is going to happen. Her parents liked you. Her parents loved me. She was a Spanish girl. Really, it was all, all, the whole nine yards. She was a beautiful person. And then one day she came to me and said to me, I have, we have to talk. And we, after work, we went to this restaurant, and she, she lowered the boom. She said to me, I have to stop seeing you. And for the reason? What reason? And did she you said, I, it's, it's not you, it's me. She said, wouldn't, I said, what did I do wrong? I, I'm sorry. What, what? I went on and on and on. I begged her. I cried in the restaurant. People were looking at me as if I'm nuts. Because you didn't know how to process this because process. you never, no one ever taught you how to get, nobody taught you how to go to a grocery store, let alone how to get over a heartbreak. There you go, no relationship to nothing. And, uh, and it, was, it, was, it was petrified, it was, it was devastating, that's the word, it was devastating. Have you ever learned how to maintain a relationship? No, no. Never married? Never married, no, 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 no. Dating, no kids, nothing. Yeah? Nothing, I just changed my whole life, I know. Everybody says, all my friends from St. Vincent's, when years later, they all thought I'd be having a family and raising kids. But all I have now is godchildren in the, the Fordham University basketball team. I spent 17 years as a, as a weight training coach with Fordham University. What's stopping you now, Ed? Now I'm setting my ways. I am setting my ways. I'm, I'm ready to retire. No, no, I want no, I want no, no hooks, no, no responsibilities now. You want your freedom. <laughs> I want my freedom now. Thank you. I want my freedom. Ed, in your book, you said you grew up feeling like a number and not a person. How do you feel now? Now I feel like a person. Why? I feel like a movie. Because I've had, I'm, you know what happened? There's a doctor, Peter Vaughn, the dean of the Fordham School of Social Work. We're personal friends. And he told me almost, well, 10 years already, he goes, Ed, you made your own family. You made your own family. And, and in life, I made my own family. Fordham University basketball team for 17 years. Those student athletes, that I'm, they're, like, they're like my family. They're like my children. They, 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 they don't like hearing that. Because I was tough on them in the weight room, right? Because you were their the weight, weight coach. I was weight training coach for the basketball team. But I, but I, but at the same time, I showed what that year I, was this? From 1982 to 1999, for 17 years, and Coach Tom Penders, who, uh, author of Dead Coach Walking, who's the one that got me started at Fordham, who who really talks about the book, who says anybody that has obstacles to overcome must read Ed Rose's book. And that's, we can talk about that as we close, Why? Who, who, what's the audience for my book and how I came about writing that book. Because here you are, left on, uh, on a doorstep, raised in an institution until you were 19, out on your own, had your ups and downs, then you get your 
bachelor's at, at Fordham, your master's and, at Fordham. And my license, yeah, and clinical social work. And yes, what are you doing now? And now I, I work for the State Office of Mental Health, and I'm the coordinator for Mental Health Service for Manhattan and Staten Island. Ed, what suggestion do you have for other baby boomers who were raised in institutions that may be struggling to overcome some of the feelings that you had? Well, in a nutshell, get over it. <laughs> okay, it sounds cold, but you gotta you you gotta believe in yourself. You gotta be resilient. You gotta believe. You gotta set goals for yourself. That's that's the key. You gotta set goals for yourself, and you gotta raise the bar. I'm I'm constantly raising the bar bar for myself, and I believe in that. Challenging yourself. You have to challenge yourself, and associate with people that you can learn from. Became part of my family too. Any last words for our listeners, Ed? Yes. What I'd like to say is, I want to just say this that. I think that this book, that anybody has obstacles, should read this book. And that's the purpose of this book. It's to give people hope and inspiration that if Ed Rose can do it, anybody can achieve their goals. And it's for all socioeconomic audiences, not just the poor. It's for anybody that has aspirations and goals to achieve should read that book, Raised by the Trek by Judith Estrin and myself. And myself. And Judith Estrin, to be honest, my co-author, she's also my guardian angel Aww. because she turned my manuscript into gold. And Robin, I want to thank you very much for this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. My guest today has been Ed Rose. His book, Raised by the Church, Growing Up in New York City's Catholic Orphanages, is available from Fordham Press. I'd also like to thank my producer, Kevin Klein. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. You can also friend us on Facebook and catch up on past shows with our weekly podcast. Stay with us. George Bodarkey and Cityscaper next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. 90.7 